You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. You may be seated. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. If you want to grab your Bible and go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be, so if you want to flip there, that would be wonderful. And it's going to take us just a few minutes to get there, so uh, go ahead and you can keep that open on your lap and uh, hang with me for a second. If you missed last week, uh, and for those who did, I just need to do a quick recap and catching you up on a couple of family issues that we talked about last week. And so if you did miss last week, I I just want to ask you to make sure that before you go to bed tonight, you go back and grab that sermon online. You can find it um, on the website. That you go back and find that sermon and listen to it before you go to bed tonight. Um, It's it's really key in the next few months for us. And so make sure you do that. That would be a really big help. So let me just tell you two of the things that we covered right off the get-go last week. And one is this, that we've been praying for the last uh, roughly month, fasting and praying over this decision to buy 23 acres at the corner of Walnut Grove in 287. And uh, we feel like we're to the point where we can say with confidence that we feel like God is leading us in that direction. And so barring God doing something out of the ordinary um, that just shuts that door over the next month, um, in mid-May we should be closing on that 23 acres. So that's kind of coming down the pike at us. And then secondly, we talked about that we're entering a season, January, or I'm sorry, April, uh, May, and June, where we are doing a three-month season of generosity. And we tried to clarify a couple of the reasons for that. And so one, one thing we tried to clarify is that it wasn't, it's not about this piece of property that we're doing three months of generosity. It has everything to do with, rather than this piece of property, this four-year, what we call the conference center cliff. That there's, there's a day when the conference center is going to look at us and say, it was great having you, but have a good life. And we've got to get ready for that day. And so part of what we're doing now is praying and preparing and planning for that moment where we're having to move out of here. And so one of the couple of things that we're doing is this season of generosity, this three-month season. We're asking God to, uh, to, to, to give us for a future move in the neighborhood of $600,000 over the next three months to prepare ourselves for a huge move out of here in four years from now. And so we're asking every family in our church that's a part of Stonegate, if you're Stonegate covenant member, you're part of our church family, to make sure you get before God, asking God to show you where maybe you are believing in the seductive promises and warnings that, that money and possessions offer, where, where you're believing in those sort of things, that you'd get before God and you would allow God to clarify for you what it would look like over the next three months for you to get to a joyful and sacrificial place in regards to your giving, something that would be extraordinary for you. Um, over the next three months. And so this is the way that we're asking it, that that over the next three months that you would get to a place where you're giving in such a way that it requires more faith in regards to money and possessions than any other moment of generosity has. So I don't know what that looks like for you. I think God's clarifying it for us. It's a little bit scary. Uh, But at the same time, and this was the point of the sermon last week, I think it's going to lead my family, me, Laura, our kids, I think it's going to lead us to greater joy which is the ultimate reason that we're doing a three-month season of generosity. So go back and listen to that sermon, and I just want to invite you in on that for you to get to a place of joyful and cheerful sacrifice when it comes to generosity over the next three months. Okay, um, today we are in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and let me kind of preface this text by saying this. I think there's there's a couple of, of postures that we can have toward our own sinfulness, And let me describe a couple of those. One posture towards our sinfulness is that we can feel our sinfulness. We can start to see that clearly, our sinfulness. And it causes us, though, to run from God. So so we're seeing all that we are and all that we aren't apart from Jesus. And it causes us to have this feeling of God is unapproachable. The last thing I can do in my filth, in my mess, in my sin is run to God. So it creates this posture where we're seeing the depths of our sinfulness, that even our best deeds are shot through with sinful motives. We're seeing our sinfulness, and it's causing us, it's putting in us this this fear of God that we're running from God in the midst of our sinfulness. Another posture that people can have, so if this is one one, uh, response, here might be another one on the other side, is we just don't think we're that bad. Like we just think about our life, and it just doesn't, we just don't see our sinfulness very well. 
We know that like Romans 3.23 exists, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But when we think about falling short of the glory of God and we think about our life and our spouses, we've fallen short, but our spouse has really fallen short. We start comparing ourselves to other people and we start thinking this. Well, if, if Adolf Hitler has fallen short, I think I'm okay. If my crazy neighbor is in the same category of falling short, surely I'm all right in this thing. And we just don't see the sinfulness of our sin. And because of that, we don't see the amazing nature of grace. So so where this person doesn't run um, to God, but runs away from God, because they they feel their sin, this person is just kind of sickened by God. Like like God God is like, what's the use of God? Like, I'm not that bad. Okay, now I want to just clarify that for both of those two responses, there is the same root issue. In both of these two postures towards sin. And the same root issue in both of these two two responses is what we would call self-righteousness. It's relating to God based on our performance for God. So in this person who is feeling their sin, that they're relating to God based on their performance for God. So so when, when we're seeing our sin, the last thing we can do, because we're failing all of God's standards, the last thing we could do is approach God. Because our relationship with God is based on how well we behave. And when we don't behave well, it goes badly for us. It's despair. Oh my God, we, we've got to get away from God. But, but for this person over here, it's self-righteousness too. They're relating to God based on their performance for God. The difference is that these people over here, they think whatever standards they've created between them and God, they're actually meeting them in an okay way. And because they're meeting the standards, they they don't see a need for a Savior. Grace does not seem amazing to them. There's no pursuit of God in them because they actually think they're okay. Like like their good works have actually satisfied them. They're, They're okay with that. But, but for both of these, they're relating to God based on their performance. Listen to Jerry Bridges address both of these two kind of categories or postures towards sin. It'll be on the screen for you. In his book, Discipline of Grace, he says it this way. Pharisee-type believers, so this is category two over here, that just don't really feel the weight of their sin. They unconsciously think that they have earned God's blessing through their behavior. Guilt-laden believers, the the people over here who run from God when they realize they're sinful. Guilt-laden believers are are quite sure that they have forfeited God's blessing because of their lack of discipline or their disobedience. But, But here's the problem. Both have forgotten the meaning of grace. Both have forgotten the meaning of grace because they have moved away from the gospel and slipped into a performance relationship with God. And just allow this next statement to remind you of the good news of the gospel. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. There are some in the room, like right now, who you need to hear that. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And there's others who need to hear this in the room. And your best days... Your best behavior, your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Maybe if you could uh, picture a third way. So so if over here is the guilt-laden, I'm feeling my sin and I'm running from God. Over here is, I just really don't think I'm that bad. Like I think my my good deeds are actually gaining me something before God. That's this category. Maybe you could picture a third way that we would call the gospel. That we are actually feeling our sin. We're seeing just how sinful we are and how sinful God sees us. Like we're, we're able to own that. And at the same time, we are owning how sinful we are. We are amazed at the grace of God. Who, who would send his son Jesus to cover all of our filth and nastiness. See, it's when we start seeing our sin in all caps that we start seeing grace in all caps. It's when we start seeing just how sinful we are, it's when we start seeing that that we start realizing just how gracious God is to us. 
And that's what we're going after, a gospeled heart, a person that is living in this third way, seeing just how sinful we are and just how gracious God is. That's what we're praying for around our church. We're praying for in you. And I don't know of a better passage to see this thing play out, to, to, to maybe go to, to help us by the grace of God get there. So, so we're praying this morning that God would use this text to take us to that third way, helping us see our sinfulness, just how big our sin is, and just how great God's amazing grace is. So this text is going to show us two things. Two things. Here's the first thing. It is going to show us the wonder of salvation. It's going to show us how salvation works and how amazing God's grace is in the midst of it. And it's also going to have for us a very sober warning. So we've got the wonder of of, of salvation and a sober warning against self-righteousness. So here we go. The wonder of salvation. Here's the first thing. And start with me in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. So talking about Jesus here, that Jesus, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. Now this Levi is um, who you might know as Matthew. So first gospel in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that, this Levi here is that Matthew. Goes by two different names, fairly common in the first century. So Levi, Matthew, Matthew, Levi, person who penned the first gospel. So this is who we're talking about. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, now just mentally mark that. He's sitting at the tax booth when Jesus sees him. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now that right there is an amazing passage. Let me just point out four different things in this passage really quickly. First, you see the word um, tax like tax collector, this tax booth idea that Levi is a tax collector. Now, we've got no modern example of this in 21st century American life. So let me just kind of help you give the background of what a tax collector was in first century Jewish life. Um, So when you go back to the first century, here's what you've got. Rome has conquered and is ruling all the way from England to India. So we are talking a huge empire. Now, it's really easy when we think about Rome to romanticize Rome, but there's, no, there's nothing romantic about these people. That They were ruthless and oppressive rulers. You, would, you did not want to be conquered by Rome. So, so they, they are ruthless people. They were ruthless in the way they conquered you, and they were ruthless in keeping you conquered after they conquered you. So, so we're talking about ruthless rulers. And it was these ruthless rulers who were over... Um, the Jews in the first century. So, so you've got these foreign oppressors who have set up and conquered this area of the world. Now the question is, how do you fund and support an army that spans from England to India? How do you do that? This army that's got to quell any uprising and is also conquering more land. How, how do you support them? Answer, you start taxing the people that you conquered. That's how you do it. And so it was said, I've read in one place that um, in some areas, they would tax people up to 90%. Just feel that for a second, right? You think you got it bad now? April 15th coming? 90%, right? I mean, so, so this is terrible stuff. Now, let, let's transfer this over to, to Jewish life in first century. Um, Rome didn't collect their own taxes. They outsourced all of that. So in first century Jewish world, you would have a group of Jewish men who would pull their resources together and collectively they would buy the right from Rome to to collect taxes on their own people. Now just think about the dynamic there. You've got foreign oppressors and you've got your own brothers who have bought the right to collect taxes from those foreign oppressors from you. Okay, so this is the dynamic. Now, just feel the sort of healthy hatred you might feel if you were like a patriotic Israelite. Okay, so you've got some, you've got some hatred and some seething anger already working here. Now, to make matters worse, how a tax collector made their money and, and lined their pockets was by extorting and stealing from people. So if Rome wanted this much, they would go ahead and collect that much and keep the difference. Now, this is why in Jewish writings like the Mishnah, it's, it was a, a collection of writing in about 200 AD that kind of summarized the oral tradition in, in Israel. Um, in the Mishnah, here, the, the tax collectors were always grouped with two other groups of people. 
So they were always in this little triad, this group of three. It would be thieves and robbers and tax collectors. They're, they're always in that group. They were renowned thieves. And, and, and to make matters worse, there was no regulation over them. So if they showed up at your house on April 15th and said, hey, you owe 45%. And you said, well, it was just 20% last year. I mean, it's a big tax increase. They, they would just look back at you and say, wow, it just went to 45%. I'm so sorry about that. And you had no right or recourse to fix that. So there's no regulatory like body over them. They could do what they want and you had no authority, no power to right any of those wrongs. Danny Aiken, he, he described tax collectors like this. Tax collectors were notorious in that day and hated by the Jewish people as traitors and abusers of their own flesh and blood. They were a mafia-like organization in the first century that exploited others, namely their own people. So if you just carry that forward, um, in first century Jewish life, tax collectors were, were seen as so vile and so nasty that they were banned from the synagogue. It would be like us putting a sign up front that said, hey, if you are a, an employee of the IRS, sorry, you're not allowed to come in. This is how bad they were viewed. Um, you keep going. that They were considered unclean. So if they came into your house or touched your house, your whole house was unclean. All the way from the very conservative Jewish religious leaders to the very liberal. The whole span of that, liberal to conservative, they all said to the Jewish people, you are completely within God's will if you lie to tax collectors. So this is how bad that they were viewed in first century life. If you were to walk up to any little Jewish neighborhood in the first century and say, who's the worst people that you know? Like, who is that guy that is the worst? The first thing you would hear is tax collectors. People just like Matthew. They were the dirtiest people of their society. That They were the nasty people. They were the pond scum of first century Jewish life. This is tax collectors. Okay, now here's where it gets amazing. In light of that, they, they are, you just picture the worst thing you can think of, that's tax collector. Like right now, the worst sin you could think of, like the thing that kind of disgusts you, that would be first century tax collector feeling for, for Jewish people. Now, this is where it gets amazing. Look at verse 13. We've got a tax collector. And as, he pa as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And what's Levi doing? sitting at his tax booth. He just got caught red-handed in the worst of your sins. He's in his tax booth when Jesus sees him. This would be akin to a person getting caught in the act of adultery. This would be the exact same like in our 21st century you know, world. This would be um, you walking up on the guy as he's walking out of the adult movie store. This is you catching the person red-handed in the worst of acts. That this is what you've got in this moment. Just picture the worst sort of behavioral sin that you can think of and you being caught in it. This is what it felt like to Matthew. Or, yeah, to Matthew. He is caught red-handed in the worst and the most reviling sorts of sins. Now everyone around you, they, they just saw Jesus catch Matthew in his tax collecting booth. They just saw him catch him right there. Everyone around Jesus thinking this, well, finally, finally, Matthew is about to get a bolt of lightning called down out of heaven, and he's about to get killed right here in his tax booth. But look at what, what happens. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax booth in the middle of his sin. The worst of his sin, in, right in the middle of it. And Jesus said to him, follow me. If you were around that scene in that moment and you were a Jewish man, your response was, what? Th that did not just happen. The light, where's the lightning bolt? That should have just happened. He just said, come and follow me. He, he, just, he just gave grace to this guy. Jesus just caught him in the, like this is the extorter. This is the man that has been stealing from my family for years. And Jesus just had grace on him. 
Jesus just looked at him in the middle of his tax collecting booth and said, come and follow me. Are you serious? Now, now watch what happens next. And he passed by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And do you want to know what creates a willingness and a want to follow Jesus? It's when you realize you are as sinful as Matthew. Caught in your tax collecting booth, Jesus comes up to you in the middle of your worst sin, expresses grace to you, gives unmerited grace to you, lavishes it on you, says, come and follow me. And that's when you get this response. And he rose and he followed. I love what it says in, in Luke, Luke's account of this. It says he gave up everything and followed him. See, when we start seeing that amazing grace of God in our life, it puts a song in our heart and it puts a desire deep in our soul to run after Jesus. Okay, so let me, let me just wrap up the point of this story. The point of the story Matthew's not just a picture of the worst of people. Matthew, in his tax collecting booth, he is a picture of all people. Matthew isn't an example of the sort of people God can save. Matthew is a perfect picture and example of every person God saves. Are we seeing this? Like the point of the story is that you are Matthew. That's the point. That, that if you could think of pond scum sinful, that's sinful. Like so sinful that it, that it disgusts you, that's sinful. That disgusting. That that is what we are before God, that disgusting. That's what our sin feels like to God, looks like to God. Just like it looked to first century people when they looked at Matthew. That is the disgust that our sin is toward God. That's how bad and that's how sinful your sin is. But this is how amazing the grace of God is. And it's when we see our sinfulness in all caps, big letters, that we start to see grace in all caps and bigger letters. The grace of God, the unmerited and unearned favor and affection of God to, to not just undeserving people, but ill-deserving people. Let me just describe the difference between those two things. Undeserving and ill-deserving. Undeserving. Let me give you a picture of that. Undeserving is this. You find a random homeless guy that, that desperately needs a home. You know he needs a home. And so you, in your, in, in your grace and in your kindness, you, you give him $10,000 to make a down payment on a home. That, that, that is you giving grace to an undeserving person. They did nothing to earn that. But see, the grace in the Bible is bigger than God doing something for undeserving people. It's God doing something for ill-deserving people. So let me carry out that picture. Here's the picture of an ill-deserving man. It's a homeless man who broke into your house and stole everything in your home and killed everyone in your family. And you searching out and finding that man who did that to you, who deserves your wrath, who deserves your condemnation. It's you searching that man out and finding him. But rather than killing him, you forgive him and you adopt him into your family. You bring him into your home and you give him a room in your house. That's the picture of grace in the Bible. That, that we are the rebellious men and women who slayed God's perfect son. And God, in his grace, tracked us down, pursued us, found us, and rather than killing us, forgave us. Rather than slaying us, he saved us. He brought us into his family and has bestowed upon us blessing upon blessing. That is the amazing grace of God, and that's what we're seeing in this passage with Matthew. That, that we are Matthew, that we are that sinful, that Matthew is a picture of us. And, and what we're seeing in this passage is not just the amazing grace toward Matthew, but the amazing grace toward you and I. Amen. I love how Tim Chester puts it. He says it this way, it'll be on the screen for you. That the message is clear. Jesus has come for losers, people in the margins, people who have made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you. 
See, that, that's the people that Jesus came for. The, the people, losers, in the margins, realize just how messed up they are. He, he came for them. He has pursued them. If you want to know what separates Christianity from every other way of relating to God, it's that Christianity is not based on your performance for God, but on Jesus' perfect performance for you. That we don't have to worry about relating to God over our behavior. But, but because of the gospel, because of Jesus, or God sending Jesus, his perfect son, who, who lived perfectly, perfectly fulfilling his commands, dying on the cross in our place, risen from the dead on the third day, that, that now we can look at God and know that we now relate to God not based on our behavior, but on Jesus' perfect behavior for us. Separates Christianity from everything else, that sort of amazing grace. Now, let me just talk to the people in the room that are in this group one. You, you feel just how sinful you are, but here's what it does to you. It makes you feel beaten up. See, when you think about just how, how, how sinful you are, you, you kind of, there's a part of you that wants to justify that. There's a part of you that, that just feels so beaten up in the middle of, I am so sinful. And, and see, I, I just wonder if, if, if what's keeping you from running to God is that. That you have a picture of God that looks like this. You have been caught red-handed in your tax booth, whatever your tax booth is. It could be your pornography. That could be your sexual sin. That could be your pride and arrogance. That could be your dishonesty. But you're caught in the middle of your tax booth and your picture of God is one standing outside the door with arms folded and a look of condemnation at you. And can, can you just look at this passage and see that that is not God's posture? That that's not Jesus' stance? He comes up to Matthew in the worst of his sin and says, come and follow me. And I just wonder how many of us are over there that just need to hear that, that you don't have, because of Jesus, you don't have to relate to God based on your behavior. That, that your failures and your fallings are not what determine and define your relationship with God. But Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. That your good behavior and or your bad behavior don't determine and define your relationship with God. But Jesus' perfect behavior for you. I just wonder how many of us need to hear that and feel that. So that's the wonder of salvation. Now we get to the second part. And this is a sober warning against self-righteousness. I mean, th these are some rough words from Jesus here. A, a warning against self-righteousness. So pick it up in verse 15. And, it, and as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house. And I, I love this passage. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. See, this isn't arms folded Jesus. This is Jesus pursuing us in the middle of our tax collecting booth. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Verse 16, now listen to this statement, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees. So this is like the most religious of the most religious crew. The, the top end of the top end. That this is the, the top end of the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Welcome to category two, self-righteousness. Just can't see how sinful they are. Just can't see it. Don't have a category to think about that in. So let me start by just defining again what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness defined goes like this. Self-righteousness is relating to God based on your performance for God. And this is what self-righteousness is. It's between us and God is our performance. So, so what makes us okay with God is not Jesus, but our good behavior. It's relating to God based on our performance for God. Its cousins are legalism and moralism. It's believing that we can earn God's blessing through our good behavior. That we can earn God's grace through our good living. That we can be right with God because of our righteousness. That God's mercy for us and to us depends on our morality. This is self-righteousness. Between us and God is our behavior, our morality, how well we're performing. Now, let me just contrast that self-righteousness with the gospel. 
In Isaiah 64, the, the Bible says this, God through Isaiah says this, that your righteousness is like filthy rags. Now, I, I don't want to like jump all the way into what filthy rags means, but like we're talking minstrel cloth. Not your bad deeds. Okay, we're not, we're not talking about your worst deeds. I, God, God through Isaiah is saying your best deeds before God. Like the things that you would look at and say, but God, look at those. Your best deeds, Isaiah is saying, that they are like filthy rags to God. This is what your righteousness, your best deeds look like. So if you want to point to your good parenting, if you want to point to how honest of a person you are, if you want to point to your business savvy, it doesn't matter what you're pointing to. God is saying, if you're depending on that to make you okay with me, I want you to know what that smells like to me. Filthy rags, that's what it smells like to me. Now some of us need to feel that for a second. Romans 3 is going to say it this way, that no one is righteous before God. Like you don't have righteousness before God. Like you, you have none. There, there is nothing that God can look at in you and think, well, at least they've got that. There is not one point of morality or good behavior that God looks at and says, well, because they've got that, now we're okay. Paul is saying in Romans 3 that, that you don't have any righteousness. That you've got none. That there is nothing God looks at and says, man, at least they've got that under control and they've got that nailed. At least they're, they're, you don't have any of that, he's saying. That, that you are void of all righteousness. Like the point is, like this is gospel, that we are Levi. And what makes grace so amazing is that we stop trying to make ourselves presentable before God and we realize that we are in the tax collecting booth and God sees us in there. Like God sees us in the worst of our sin and in the worst of our sin, God comes after us, pursues us, and gives us amazing grace. That's gospel. See, for the self-righteous person, what, what makes it so sinful is that it changes our view of, of who Jesus is. So for the self-righteous person that, that is relating to God based on their performance, they can look at Jesus as, as a good example to follow, as a good moral teacher, even as a good prophet. They can look at Jesus to all of those things. But for the person who is relating to God based on their performance of God, uh, with God, here's the one thing they can't view Jesus as, a savior. W why? Because they are depending on their good works to save them. So th this is what makes it so dangerous. This is why self-righteousness is the premier and primary enemy of the work of the gospel in your heart. That self-righteousness, you thinking that you've got something to offer God, you, you thinking that your good deeds somehow earn you something toward God or forfeit you something before God. The premier, the primary enemy of the gospel is self-righteousness. Now just sail on that for a second. In your life right now, the premier enemy of the gospel is your propensity toward self-righteousness. Your propensity toward relating to God based on your performance for God. And Jesus in this passage gives a sober warning against that. He, he's warning us that this is dangerous. You, you need to be aware of this thing. He, he's giving us a sober warning. So let's talk self-righteousness and its danger. When you um, read this passage and you see these two things. We've got Matthew, the immoral tax collector, and we've got the Pharisees that show up, the moral, you know, religious people. So on one hand, we've got moral and religious. They're good guys. They are the people that you would look at right now. Like, just picture a friend that you would say this about. Man, that guy's just a good guy. God, he's just a, he's just a good guy. Okay, that, that's Pharisees. See, we paint them out to be like evil people, but they're the good guys. Okay, so, so over here we've got the good guys, the Pharisees. Over here we've got the immoral bad guys, the tax collector, Matthew. Now when you start reading this passage, who is it that you would feel like is in the most danger? Just read, I mean, just thinking about tax collector immoral, Pharisee moral, 
Who's in the most danger? See, here's the ironic thing that the Bible shows us throughout the New Testament, that it's actually the moral good guys who are in the most dangers of missing salvation, not the immoral bad guys. You see, this is part of the point of Luke chapter 15 with the parable of the two sons. You've got the prodigal who runs far off, and you've got the elder brother who stays at home obeying all the rules. But at the end of the story, who gets it? The younger brother, the prodigal, doesn't he? The, the, the older brother, the Pharisee, he's on the outside. Uh, this is part of what this story is trying to show us. This is what, and let me just give you one tangible example of this in a concise um, story that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18. This will be on the screen for you. And the heading is, of this is the tax collector and the Pharisee. Okay, so we're dealing with those two people. The moral Pharisee, the good guy, and the immoral tax collector. Who is going to get the gospel? Okay, watch this. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted, and this is a description of self-righteousness, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were good. They had something to offer in this thing. And they treated others with contempt. Here's how the story goes. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a moral Pharisee, good guy, and the other, an immoral bad guy tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, specifically this guy, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, like that guy right there. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector right there. And then it goes on. I fast twice a week. Look at all I'm doing for you, God. Look at how good my behavior is. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now who's going to get it? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now isn't that amazing that the good guy actually misses it and the bad guy gets it? Why is that? It's because the good guy had so much to look to for his righteousness. He had so much good behavior that he could not see his need for a savior. And that is exactly what Jesus is warning of in this passage. Look at, look at verse 17. One of the most, like one of the strongest warnings that Jesus gives in the scriptures. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, when he heard their self-righteous question like Jesus how can you relate and, and interact with and, and be friends with those people? How can you do that? When he heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, let me just clarify what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus is not saying that there are some who are sick in their sin and there's some who are not. And I came to save the ones who are sick. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that everyone is sick in their sin, but only some people can see that. Only some people are aware of just how sick they are. This is the point. Think about it this way. When do you go to the doctor? You don't go to the doctor when you've got a scratch on your arm. Why? Because you feel like you can control the scratch. I mean, you feel like that's under your power to fix See, you go to the doctor when you wake up one day and realize, I may die if I don't get help. I, this is beyond my ability to solve. I need expert help that is better and knows more than I do. That's when you go to the doctor. And see, here's what he's saying about the Pharisees. They really feel like their sickness with sin can be fixed with a band-aid of their good behavior. So if I just put that band-aid of one more moral act, I'll, I'll tithe, I'll do this, I'll do that, then I'll be okay. It's because of their good behavior that they can't see just how sick they are. See, Jesus is saying that the ones who get it, the ones who come to me, the ones I'm saving, it's the people who realize they are so sick with sin that they can't fix themselves. It's the ones who realize that their soul is eaten up with the cancer of sin and that they are going to die unless they get a cure. It's those people who get it. Maybe you can think of it this way. Jesus is saying this, 
It's the only thing necessary to be a recipient of grace is to know that you need it. And what's keeping the Pharisees back from knowing they need it is their good deeds. I love how one pastor put it. He says, to get grace, all you need is nothing, but so few people have it. See, the problem with the Pharisees is all they needed was nothing to get it, to get grace from Jesus. But the problem is they, could, they just didn't think they had nothing. I mean, they actually thought they had something. Like their good deeds. They thought they had something to contribute and to give to that. It's ironic that the Pharisees' good behavior is actually more dangerous and potentially more damning to them than Matthew's bad behavior. Because they're they're so prone to look at their good behavior to save them, to make them right. See, when you... To become a Christian, what you have to know is that you have nothing before God. Now think about Matthew caught in his tax collecting booth. All Matthew has to know is that his bad behavior won't do it for him. That's all he has to know. And it's pretty easy for Matthew to see that his tax collecting bad behavior is earning him nothing. But the Pharisee has to see this. He's got to see that all of his good deeds shot through with bad motives. That even the best of his deeds earn him nothing before God. And that is so, so difficult for the Pharisee to see. I like how um, John Gerstner, theologian, he put it this way. The main thing between him, the Pharisees, and God is his damnable good works. That's what's separating him from God, is his damnable good works. that He can't see that even his best works are filthy rags. This leads J.C. Ryle to say this. This will be on the screen for you. Of all the mischievous delusions that keep men out of heaven, of all the soul-destroying snares that Satan employs to oppose Christ's gospel, there is none that we find so dangerous, none so successful as self-righteousness. Oh, let us beware of self-righteousness. Open sins, like Matthew's, open sin kills its thousands of souls. Self-righteousness, the Pharisees' sins, self-righteousness kills its tens of thousands. Maybe you could think of it this way, that there will be more good-behaving, self-righteous people in hell than there will be pimps and prostitutes. There will be as many careful parents in hell as there will be careless parents. There will be as many hard-working, obedient people in hell as there are lazy and disobedient people in hell. There will be as many alcohol-absent people in hell as there are alcohol addicts. There will be as many moral people in hell as there are murderers. See, this is the point of this passage. And the reason is because a murderer can so easily see they have nothing to offer God. But but for those of us who are moral, there's just this... Our hearts are so prone to believe that we actually have something to save ourselves with, our good behavior. See, becoming a Christian means not just us repenting of our bad deeds, but it also means us repenting of all of our good deeds done with the wrong motives, shot through with the wrong motives. It means us repenting of all of those things and looking to Jesus as our Savior. Tim Chester follows that that statement that we looked at earlier up with this. We we read this first part of the quote when we dealt with Matthew. The message is clear. Jesus has come for losers, people in the margins, people who have made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you. But, But he goes on to say this. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God. The self righteous and the self important. Sadly, that includes many people. I mean, it's just my fear that that could be including many of us. So let me finish by giving some signs of self-righteousness. Some signs. Now, when you think about self-righteousness, even for the people who are saved in the room, it is good for you to know that self-righteousness exists in you. It's just depending on, like, to what degree. 
That, that we can either be, like in the parable of the prodigal son, we can either be the elder brother that, that is not saved and is still apart from God because we're depending on our good deeds, or we can be elder brother-ish. We can be a Christian who still has those elder brother tendencies to relate to God based on our performance for God. So let me give you um, 10 questions. This is uh, given from Jerry Bridges. 10 questions to just help you diagnose self-righteousness in you, to help you see it. Number one, do you tend to live by a list of do's and don'ts? So, so your relationship with God is lived by this do's and don'ts kind of checklist mentality. Number two, is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards, standards aren't as high as yours? I mean, do you, do you find yourself being a person who, who can look at other people and say comments like this? I just don't respect them very much. Like these people I respect, but these people I don't respect them very much. See, that's because you've created a standard in your mind. And when people don't like match your standard, you look down on other people. So, so do you find it difficult to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Number three. Do you assume that practicing spiritual disciplines should result in God's blessings? So if I do this, then God will do that. It's relating to God based on your performance for God. Number four, do, and, and take a second to just ask this honestly. Do you feel you're better than most other people? And, and you know what you'll find is I think you, you'll see that much more often than you think. You know the reason why a lot of people outside the church really believe that people inside the church are judgmental? You know why that is? Because we are. That's why. Because we are. Because we all have this tendency to, when we hear like a particular sin, and whatever that little particular sin is, we, we have this tendency to think, oh my Lord, how could they have done that? And we fail to see that apart from grace, you'd be doing that. We fail to see that there is not one sin you want to talk about, not one, that you're not capable of committing. See, so, so we'll look down on the people who have had an affair. We'll, we'll look down on the people who are in a homosexual lifestyle. We'll look down on the people just caught in pornography. Why? Because how could we ever do that? Come on. Yeah, yeah, you can. Apart from grace, you would be doing that. Like, that's the point. I, all the, all the positive words in the Bible like grace and redemption and restoration and reconciliation and being born again, they only make sense in light of you being capable of everything, anything. They only make sense in light of that. Do you feel that you're better than most people? I mean, seriously, are there like people in your life that you look at and just think, they are total screw-ups. Thank God I'm not like them. Number five, has it been a long time since you identified a sin and repented of it? Like when's the last, like seriously, when is the last time that, that you have thought, wow, that was a sin against God? And you turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. When's the last time that's happened? See, self-righteous people don't repent. They don't feel like they've got anything to repent of. So you ask the question like, man, what, what's sin look like in your life? And it's, well, I remember this time like four years ago. But like last week, last two weeks, I, 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 yeah, I, don't, I don't know. If, I think I'm good there. Number six, do you resent it when other, others point out your spiritual blind spots? So they're helping you see you. They're speaking the truth in love. And our, your response in the middle of that is, I wonder if you've seen you. Like, I, I, you're trying to say something about me. I wonder if, if, if you know all of you. Like, like, how could you say something about me when I know that about you? Like, it's this bitterness and this resentment when people just try to speak the truth in love and try to help along the way. Number seven. Do you readily recognize the sins of others, but not your own? See, self-righteous people are so, they have like eyes that are like detectors of sin in other people. Like their radar is just like beeping all the time with sin that they're seeing all around them. And the problem is they just can't see it very well in them. 
See, one of the things that self-righteousness does is it makes us give much more grace to us and much less grace to other people. Number eight, do you have a sense that God owes you a good life? So, so because you, you know, but what you've done, your good deeds, that God owes you this coming through. That, that God owes you health. That God owes you fill in the blank. And, and here's one of the ways that you can know if, if that's you. If question number eight is a yes. Number nine, do you get angry when difficulties and suffering come into your life? See, that, that's showing you that you really feel like God owes you a good life. So do you get angry with God when like difficulties come, when your plans that you had been thinking of and dreaming of for the last 30 years come crashing down around you, when loss occurs, when you get angry in those moments? See, it's showing you that you're relating to God based on your performance for God. Number 10, do you think or do you seldom think of the cross? You seldom think of that. It's probably a, a warning sign should be, flashing that self-righteousness is an, is an issue then. Jerry Bridges goes on to say, if you found yourself answering yes to at least half these questions, it's likely you're living under a stronghold of self-righteousness toward God. You need to see this for what it really is, a hideous enemy disguising as a satisfying glory. It will let you down and leave you hanging. Its satisfaction is as short-lived as an ice cube in the blazing sun. Its glory has all the appeal of a well-dressed corpse. And at the end of the day, this fact remains. No amount of personal performance will ever gain the approval of a holy God. So the question is, how do we get rid of self-righteousness? How does that happen? Let me just put question number 10 back up on the screen. This is how it happens. Question number 10. Do you seldom think of the cross? Did you know how to get rid of self-righteousness? is to live near the cross. That's how. See, th this is what the cross shows us. Right, part, part one of what the cross shows us is just how sinful we are. I, you are so sinful, I am so sinful, that when my sin got stacked onto Jesus, it pulverized him, crushed him. That's how sinful I am. My sin goes to him, he is crushed for it, pulverized. I think of every time Jesus was beaten, that's a, that's, a, that's a picture of just how sinful you and I are. Every lash is just showing us how sinful we are. Crown getting pressed onto his head, it's just showing us how sinful we are. Crucified on a cross, suffocating to death, showing us how sinful we are. But you know what else the cross shows us? Just how loved we are. Just how big grace is for us. That, that not only that Jesus had to die for our sin, but we are so loved and God is so gracious that Jesus was glad to die for our sin. That we no longer have to relate to God based on our performance, but now because of Jesus, we can relate to God over grace over the good news of the gospel, over Jesus's perfect life lived in place of our imperfect life. We, we can relate to God based on, over, all of our sin being stacked onto Jesus and all of Jesus's perfect record of righteousness being given to us. That's how we get rid of self-righteousness. That's how we get a gospeled heart, a heart that can see just how big our sin is and just how gracious God is toward us. And when we get near the cross, you, you know what it makes us want to say? You, you know what it makes us do? Do you know what it makes us realize? Just how great of sinners we are and just how great of a Savior Jesus is. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.